Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Raffalino. I'm an editor here with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across not a great distance is the one, the only, Stephen Foskett. Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Rich. It's good to be here. Um, indeed, I could almost hear you if these walls weren't so solid and well-built. If these walls had ears, uh, it would come to a very distracting place. <laughs> really creepy. Uh, yes. Um, one thing that's not horrific, though, is the first story I wanted to talk about with you, and that is the closure of the acquisition of Carbon Black by VMware. They announced that they completed that acquisition for $2.6 billion, or what I like to call bags and bags of cash. VMware has been a bit of an acquisition spree lately, but how big is this deal, Stephen, in that they're adding this endpoint security element to their already expansive portfolio? Uh, what do you think the natural integrations with this are? Yeah, this was a really interesting one because it was announced just before VMworld and I was lucky enough to be able to go to VMworld and also to be on the analyst track at VMworld, which meant that um, I got some time um, in the uh, sort of the analyst discussions with Pat Gelsinger and uh, Michael Dell about the justification for this. And um, I, I mean, I'll just tell you, so they bought uh, basically Pivotal and Carbon Black at the same time. I think a lot of people were kind of equating the two and thinking, you know, eh, two acquisitions, um, you know. I think they're they're very different acquisitions, though. I mean, this is like, you know, buying a house and a boat at the same time. You know, <laughs> A, who would do that? But B, they're very different things. And, um, you know, Carbon Black, I don't know, is that the house or the boat? Well, we'll see what, what you think, metaphorically. Um, basically, um, you know, Pat uh, sees security as something that's broken and something that VMware can fix. And so um, he was very, very specific about that with us uh, at VMworld. Um, and it has been in the past as well. I mean, he mentioned last year that security was something that was broken and he'd like to fix. And then this year he said, security's broken and I just brought car carbon black. <laughs> and that so I don't think it's going to fix it. In fact, he didn't even say that. He said that this was going to go some of the way, right? That VMware is going to try to use this technology to do for security what uh, the hypervisor did for servers or what uh, you know NSX has done for networking. And um, that's cool. I hope it works. Uh, we'll see. Well, and that's always, to me, been kind of the subtext of a lot of the NSX discussions is that security, you know, that that kind of, you know, security is broken and we're going to give you the visibility and, and kind of the configuration to be able to fix that a little bit. I mean, NSX is such a huge thing that it's hard to pin down any one uh, particular element with that. But at least in like watching a lot of the Tech Field Day content, that always seems to be kind of like the unspoken uh, element of that. Is it a big deal that this is endpoint specific. And do you think that's a new, going to be a new focus for, or an increased focus for VMware going forward? Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, the, again, they were unequivocal about that, that, that they see the uh, endpoint and edge computing and 5G as a major expansion um, and major opportunity for VMware in, um, in the enterprise. Uh, and so, yeah, absolutely. This is not only a big entree into the security market for VMware, but it's also a big entree into the endpoint computing market, which they've already been a player in. Yeah. Um, you know, but but yeah, yeah. If you had said AI, we would have officially had buzzword bingo if we kind of the free square uh, there. So uh, yeah, you know, they're going to use a little AI with some <laughs> IoT and you know maybe some uh, Kubernetes and container orchestration to solve business. Blah 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 blah. Ugh. Okay. Let's see if we can get uh, some more buzzword bingo here because I got some news out of Puppet. They announced the public beta of Project Nebula. I love betas that are just projects because it makes uh, people think that they're not actually products, which hopes to bring the principles of configuration management automation to a cloud-native uh, deployment uh, model. 
Project Nebula lets devs set up workflows that query an overall existing state before making any changes to cloud-native continuous development. It supports over 20 cloud-native dev tools, including Terraform, CloudFormation, Helm, uh, Kube Control, and Customize, and comes with a startup example. It comes with a couple startup example workflows to kind of get you started, as well as some advanced visualization tools to kind of see where everything's at at a high level. Uh, this definitely makes sense in terms of Puppet kind of bringing their approach to this cloud-native continuous development, but how important is this as a new market for Puppet here, Stephen? Yeah, well, um, I, you know, Puppet's already uh, kind of a darling among, you know, a lot of those folks, so I'm not sure to how much of a new market it is, but I think it's a great idea. Um, certainly, uh, web development and, well, uh, cloud development, not web development, you know, uh, cloud application development hasn't had the same kind of, um, I don't know, boring, rigorous, blah, as, <laughs> as regular enterprise applications. And um, things like this are, are bringing the blah to, to cloud development. And I think that that's actually a good move for them. I think it's, I, I, I'll just tell you one thing that uh, the people who use it just love Puppet. And so I, I absolutely feel like this is going to be a good, um, a good move for them. Um, obviously, if you're developing a new app, where's it going to live? It's going to be a cloud app. Yeah. And, and, and but to your point, you know, I, I think we can we know a couple of, uh, you know, kind of industry darlings that haven't quite been able to translate that into long term success. So I think this is definitely smart to bring that that puppetized approach um, that, again, has endeared a lot of infrastructure folks into that cloud native space um, makes sense and can also win. I mean, obviously, that's a, that's a huge market, uh, probably bigger than their existing one, if they can capitalize on that uh, uh, going forward. It will remain to be seen if it stays as a darling or becomes, like you said, a blah boring thing that, oh, by the way, everyone happens to use and makes Puppet a lot of money. Yeah. Well, that wouldn't be so bad, would it? Uh, I mean, certainly not. <laughs> if you work for Puppet or are a shareholder privately, they're not public, right? Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next here, we have ARM announcing the custom instructions feature, allowing embedded systems on a chip designers to add unique application specific features to Cortex M CPUs without risking overall software fragmentation. So kind of without breaking, uh, the, you know, the, the basic ARM infrastructure there. The free standard feature will arrive in mid 2020s to ARM Cortex M33 CPUs and going forward. The standard is designed to allow uh, co to uh, better allow for co-processors with integration, useful for adding things like ML and AI uh, workloads that you know, everyone wants to do on their ARM processors. Is this ARM opening the door to our semi-custom silicon future, Stephen? Well, I think that that's what they're trying to do. Uh, whether it succeeds or not is a different question. I mean, to me, this looks an awful lot like ARM trying to figure out how to answer the fact that um, big, you know, big, big ARM users are building their own cores, adding their own instructions, you know, kind of fragmenting the ecosystem. Uh, I think the interesting aspect of this is the way that they're doing it uh, preserves backward compatibility. Um, you know, they're, they're they're making sure that that these CPUs aren't going to be like hyper custom ARM CPUs. That they just implement one or two new instructions that you know this or that company needs. Um, you know, definitely, I think that it's it's a uh, a reaction to the fact that uh, you're seeing more and more ARM licensees wanting to have their own you know CPU. Also, I think there's a big IoT angle here um, in that a lot of devices are trying to do things like, you know, in-camera um, ML uh, image processing and things like that. And I think that, that these instructions will help uh, with that as well. So to me, it looks, I don't want to say that this is a, an amazing new path forward. It looks like ARM is doing a thing that will keep them 
competitive in the market. Yeah, and you know the reason I framed it with the the semi custom kind of element to that is I think that's that's a really emerging theme that we're seeing in late 2019. I mean, obviously going forward, but uh, you know we, there was recently a more on the uh, consumer focused side we saw Microsoft basically announce two semi custom chips that they're going to be putting in stuff, but we've also seen in AMD's data center Epic things that they're bringing in things that were developed for their semi custom gaming chips on an encryption side into their mainstream data center products. And to me, it seems like because we're kind of slowing down on that uh, x86, uh, you know, kind of Moore's law, we're either going to get more power efficient, or we're going to get more powerful year over year over year, that it's causing this kind of push into the semi custom approach to get those efficiency gains that people are looking for. And I think this is just, you know, kind of another example of that. And if uh, you're interested in more thoughts on that, there may be a video coming out about that uh, later this week on Gestalt IT. Uh, indeed. And I got to say, you actually mentioned that earlier as well. Uh, you you did a nice little video uh, last week about Docker. So. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of uh, industry darlings, uh, next up here, Facebook announced that Workplace by Facebook, you know, the thing that I mean, I personally hope I never have to use now has 3 million paid users up 1 million in the past eight months. So just since February, while not directly comparable, let's put this into context where we are with this kind of uh, uh, workplace communication software suite. Uh, Microsoft Teams has 13 million daily active users uh, as of their last reporting uh, just a, a month or two ago. Slack has 10 million daily active users. Now, those aren't directly comparable to paid users, especially in the Slack instance. They just kind of lump everybody together with that. Uh, if you look at they break out the number of paid teams that are on there, but that's like a, like a much lower number because there are a ton of users on each individual team. At Facebook's Flow Conference, the company added a, a bunch of new features to Workplace for Facebook to kind of sweeten the pot there. There's going to be a Workplace Portal app for video calls that will also integrate with consumer portal devices, perhaps hinting that an enterprise portal will be coming at some point. Uh, automatic video captioning for posted content uh, for internal posted stuff, so you can have a video there and automatically have ML-generated captions. Uh, I think they just flipped a switch and brought that over from the consumer side. Peer-to-peer uh, -peer video broadcasting for internal content to kind of save on bandwidth, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, sentiment analysis in analytics. This won't break down if individual posts, you know, if you put a smiley face in your Facebook workplace post or something like that. It's not going to say, hey, Rich is really happy at work today. It does broad overall trends. doesn't break it down by individual users because, hey, Facebook, don't be creepy. Uh, and dedicated new post types for learning content, so for continuing education, and thank yous to employees. Given that Facebook doesn't need to have workplace to be uh, work for, doesn't need it for workplace to be profitable, um, especially uh, for a company compared to Slack, uh, anytime soon. Are we impressed by these growth numbers, Stephen? And you know, I think for a, a lot of people, face, workplace for Facebook was an afterthought. Seems to be gaining some traction a little bit here. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, well, for one thing. I've never talked to anyone who likes Facebook Workplace. Um, and I've talked to a few people who use it. But, um, you know, I, I, I preface that by saying that. The other thing, Rich, is uh, we've decided to move to Facebook Workplace, and uh, you're going to need to use it from now. <laughs> no, no, actually, no. Uh, honestly, I mean, Facebook Workplace is uh, obviously horrible. But um, one thing about it... One thing about it that I actually really like, and I think that this is linking into these uh, these growth numbers um, and this story, is that it's an obviously horrible product, but it's also a useful product for companies that have lots and lots of you know employees all over the place who aren't like you know like desk kind of employees. Like 
you know, let's say Domino's Pizza or somebody like that. Now, I don't know that they're a Facebook workplace user, but somebody like that um, would get this solution, you know, to roll it out to like 100,000 employees and use it as a way to connect with those employees, kind of like as a an HR intranet and um, like, a, like a modern day horrible internet. And um, everybody knows that all the ho- intranets were always awful. So this one will be awful, but familiar. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I just... There is an angle and it's an interesting angle and um, okay. And the fact that they gained like a million users in a year uh, means that this is what's happening because I can't see anybody signing up for this on purpose. But um, if somebody, you know, some big giant company needs like, you know, hey, you know, we're a, you know, health insurance, we're a hospital, we're a whatever. We need all of our employees to be able to access a thing and get access to some information and we need to push stuff out to them and implement things like chat and messaging and kind of, you know, pseudo email. Um, uh, This is a way to do it. So it's not horrible. It's just horrible. Well, it, it, I mean, if you've ever been a part of like an Outlook bulletin board situation, like that is its own like portal to hell, hashtag hell portal uh, that you've already been a part of, you know, at, at some point if you're working for a company. But I think to your point, Stephen, you know, Facebook recognizes that and they've introduced it kind of separate tiers for front of house employees. And I know Starbucks is one of their bigger clients that they have announced as uh, a workplace by Facebook partners or whatever. And they have a ton of front of house employees, right, where they can be on a much less expensive tier. You still get those people on it. They can still get access to all this continuing education. You can still get that sentiment analysis. But there are going to be people that are going to be quite as engaged as someone that's, you know, sitting in a cube farm uh, and and as someone that would be using Slack or something like that, but could still benefit from, again, having that kind of, yeah, you're absolutely right, HR, intranet uh, kind of feel to it. And maybe this isn't necessarily like a Slack competitor, but maybe... Uh, taking some of the functionality that you get from a solution uh, like for a human resource provider like ADP or something like that. Yeah, that, that's how I see it. And 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 from that aspect, honestly, it's good. Well, and people are already kind of trained on how to use Facebook. I know the interface is slightly different, but it still has that newsfeed functionality. It's still like you're posting stuff. There's a newsfeed. There's little apps on the side. So people already kind of know how to use it as opposed to introducing, you know, kind of the visual cacophony and, and unique terminology of something, even like Microsoft Teams, especially Slack can be a little bit opaque uh, when you first get started with it. Um, so, you know, having that familiarity of interface, having people that don't necessarily need to be on it in the same way that people with Slack could be, I can, I can see the appeal, not that I find it appealing in any way, like you were saying. <laughs> yes, it, it, exactly that. Yeah. So okay. uh, next up here, uh, speaking of things that I want no part of or that people want no part of, PayPal announced it's withdrawing from the Libra Association, Facebook's cryptocurrency initiative. The company said it supported Libra's aspirations and continues to will continue to partner with Facebook in the future, but will focus on its mission to democratize uh, access to financial services for underserved population. Bloomberg subsequently reported that U.S. Senators Sherrod Brown and Brian Schatz sent a letter to MasterCard, Visa, and Stripe to consider the global financial impact and effect on their own businesses of being part of the Libra Association, which doesn't sound threatening at all to those companies. I thought uh, it would be interesting here, when I first saw that story about PayPal leaving, if they would still hit their announced 2020 release date for Libra in light of having direct pressure from U.S. senators sent to specific companies. Do we think that Libra is just not going to happen now, Stephen? Oh, I think Stephen might have frozen up on us. Uh, That's okay. Uh, 
yeah, I, I'm very, very skeptical about where we will see Libra going in the future. I don't think there is... I don't know. It seems like there is just a total dearth of goodwill for this. Uh, even among Facebook partners, there seems to be uh, a lot of cooling off of enthusiasm. Remember, these are people that have pledged to uh, provide some financial support and host a node uh, uh, for the Libra blockchain, but I haven't actually committed to anything now, which is why a company like PayPal can get out of it there. Um, if we're getting big companies like MasterCard and Visa you know, uh, getting hit to uh, getting pressure from the government to kind of back out of that could be a major problem from them going forward. Uh, Stephen, uh, we're, we're talking about PayPal leaving Libra and MasterCard, Visa and Stripe getting pressure from U.S. senators uh, to maybe reconsider their association uh, with Libra. Uh, do we think Libra is going to happen in 2020 or at all? Um, I just want to note, I just had some technical difficulties. I think maybe Facebook heard what I said about workspace. Can you hear me? <laughs> Yes, uh, you are coming through loud and clear. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so honestly, um, I the, the Libra thing just was so puzzling to me. Like, why would Facebook jump into this? I mean, honestly, I can see why, because hey, we take over the entire world. But, um, you know, I, I mean, other than that, um, you know, it, 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 uh, do we need Facebook to do this? Uh, I think it's going to collapse. I think, I think this is going to go nowhere, and I think it'll be another... Um, what was the name of their uh, phone thing? And uh, who cares? It's, it's the Microsoft kin of, uh, of, crypto of cryptocurrencies. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I just I feel like this is just meh. Well, I feel like a lot of these partners got on board as like a just in case. Like, listen, it only costs us $10 million to get on the ground floor of this. If it takes off, it's better for us to have a voice on this association than not. And now all of a sudden they're getting all this pressure and being like, yeah, this is way too rich for our blood. We're getting out of this ASAP. Uh, not surprising to see uh, people kind of taking off from there. Very interesting that no banks had, were ever announced as you know members of the Libra Association and really didn't want any part of this, probably because they knew of the compliance just complete cluster that they were walking into uh so not so it's still facebook there's still a huge giant company there's still a lot of big names out there uh, my money says something called libra is released at some point but it is far apart back from any kind of vision that they initially had yeah that's uh, I'm, I'm with that um sorry guys you're not wechat <laughs> All right, and last up here, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear a decision uh, or refused to hear an appeal from Domino's upholding a lower court decision that the Americans with Disabilities Act applied to websites as well as brick and mortar stores. The act guarantees that those with disabilities have full and equal enjoyment of the goods and services of any place of public accommodations. Since the court refused to hear the appeal, another case could later be taken on by the court to set a precedent in this case. Uh, so it's not exactly close as if they had actually made a decision in this case. Stephen, looking at this, I've, this has a feeling of something kind of akin to GDPR, where there's going to be this giant short-term scramble for everybody to be in compliance, no one kind of knowing what the ground rules are, especially since this is a judicial act, not an act of legislation. I mean, say what you will about GDPR, at least that was an act of law. Yes, it had to be enacted by all the European states, which had its own huge layers of complication. Being a judicial precedent, though, it doesn't exactly set a bunch of milestones for success other than be in compliance or not be in compliance. But eventually, do you see this getting us to a place where we probably already should have been in the first place? Well, you know, I think that uh, first, let me just say that, um, you know, dis uh, access for disabled people is something that 
uh, really ought to be part of the fabric of the internet. And, um, you know, assistive devices have come to such a long way now and protocols and standards for access are at the point where there's really, I mean, it's, it's really kind of, um, disagreeable that a company like Domino's with literally millions of customers all over the world wouldn't be compliant with that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, that being said, uh, you know, there's a few aspects here. I mean, number one, like you mentioned, you know, this is a, a court ruling, uh, not a law. Um, I mean, it's applying a law, which is, of course, I guess what courts do. But um, anyway, it's it's a court ruling. Um, and, you know, and, and, and similarly to a lot of the things, um, you know, in, in the U.S. at least, you know, it's, it's difficult to get laws passed these days, um, you know, in these partisan times, um, you know, people just aren't passing legislation that would, you know, force websites to be, you know, ADA compliant. That's not likely to get through the house and the Senate and signed by whoever, um, you know, at this point, honestly, it's, uh, just the courts are the only way to do it. And of course this was not even a court ruling. This was a court, not ruling in a way. You know, I mean, this was the the Supremes saying, yeah, no, we're not going to even argue that. So um, I guess that's how things get done these days. Um, But that being said, um, I think the real interesting factor is what you just mentioned about, you know, akin to GDPR. It really is interesting because if you think about it, so if Domino's has to do this uh, in order to be compliant with the ADA, then that means that they have to do this everywhere for everyone and everything. And does that mean that everywhere, everyone and everything has to do this? Does that mean that, um, you know, suddenly everyone's going to have to be ADA compliant? Does that mean your website has to be and and mine? Um, that's a really good question. And uh, I think that this absolutely could explode in that way. I mean, you know, I, I think it would be, be, honestly, I agree with this ruling that, you know, if you're blind, you should be able to access dominoes. I mean, that's what the ADA is all about. Uh, but should you be able to access um, you know, the New York Times? Um, probably. Should you be able to access Joe's sub shop downtown? Hmm. You know, should you be able to read Gestalt IT? Uh, you know, so there are, there's a slippery slope here and there's definitely shades of gray. And I do see this spelling over. Absolutely. I mean, e- <laughs> Well, for one thing, I mean, you know, Pizza Hut had better get on it. But, um, you know, for another thing, I mean, everybody else, you know, I'm sorry, Pizza Hut, maybe you're already ADA compliant. But, uh, you know, everybody else, I think, better start looking at it as well, especially retailers. But even, you know, other sites, you know, might have to start thinking about this and thinking about how crappy every site is that I use. um, I'm not optimistic that that's going to happen. Well, and I would be interested to hear from someone uh, that has some visual impairments what their experience is using the web. You know, because I, I think when we think about this, we think about, oh, this is someone that's 100% blind and, and doesn't have access to this. But the reality is that the vast majority, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say the vast majority, there is a, a huge number of people that have some sort of visual or uh, auditory or, or you know, uh, some, some loss of those senses um, that could theoretically take advantage of something like this. I mean, how many people do you know that watch every single thing on, you know, Netflix with the captions on or something, you know, or something like that. It's incredibly common. I mean, it's incredibly common across all kinds of videos. And we, I think we're seeing on a platform level, uh, I think Apple for a while has had a lead in terms of uh, accessibility tech, but Microsoft has made a concerted effort over the past couple of years uh, across a wide variety of products to really address that need. So where the responsibility lies with, hey, our website's going to be 
accessible on a platform that has accessibility tools, you know, what the argument there is versus making the website itself, regardless of the platform, accessible. I, I think there's a little bit of wiggle room there that, you know, could cause some headaches, um, both for users and for, for companies uh, down the road. But um, yeah, uh, it, it, it will probably lead to subsequent court rulings, and that may eventually find its way to the Supreme Court. Um, but uh, but we will see. But uh, uh, definitely, I think will impact for sure the retail and uh, and any place that has you know some kind of uh, some kind of retail footprint online uh, needs to definitely take this into account for sure. Yep, absolutely. And and all I'll say is that uh, I, I want uh, um, RSS uh, feed compliance to be um, in signed into law. So that all websites have a freaking RSS feed. I think you need to take that to the Supreme Court, Stephen. Uh, and we will be there with you uh, at the courthouse uh, when we do. But it won't be today because we have reached the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. This was a blast. Where can people find more of your great stuff on the cyberspace? Well, the easiest way to find me is just look at S. Foskett on the Twitters. Um, you can also find me here on GestaltIT.com and uh, the Gestalt IT Facebook page. Uh, you can find... This little guy. Oh, sorry. Which side is he? Uh, here we here. This little guy. Ah, office sheet on the Twitters as well. Um, he's been spying on me. Um, he's eh. and um, you know, and we uh, look forward to seeing uh, folks tuning in as well for some of the Tech Field Day things going on. We're going to be broadcasting live on Monday from Commonwealth Go and um, on and on. Excellent. Uh, if you want to find me, you can find me at Mr. Anthropology. That's MR Anthropology on the Twitters. You can find me, my writing at Gestalt IT. And hey, while you're at it, why don't you uh, subscribe to the Gestalt IT YouTube channel to search for Gestalt IT on YouTube. Uh, we're having some new video, kind of, kind of putting up these video editorials I've been doing every Friday here. And uh, like I kind of teased during the show, I'm uh, going to be talking about uh, maybe the rise of semi-custom silicon, the decline of general purpose computing uh, going forward. Uh, so check that out. They'll be coming out this Friday. Uh, but Stephen, thank you once again. We'll be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, running down the IT News of the Week. Until then, for myself, for Stephen Foskett, for all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.